0: What's up, bingers? I hope you're all having a wonderful day. Before we get into today's episode, I want to take a quick second to tell you about another True Crime Podcast convention. If you missed out on CrimeCon this year and you're suffering from severe FOMO, I've just booked my own trip to Kansas City for the 4th of July weekend. This year's True Crime Podcast Festival is on. The festival is in Kansas City on July 3rd and 4th. Everything is over by 2 p.m. on Sunday, so you'll have plenty of time to make it home for fireworks, and a bunch of your favorite podcasters are going to be there, and I'll be performing True Crime Binge live. Tickets are on sale up until the 2nd, and it is significantly cheaper than CrimeCon at only $150 a ticket. And if you use my promo code RUF, they're going to give you 10% off. For you math majors out there, that makes the cost of a ticket for the whole weekend only $135. Tickets are available at truecrimepodcastfestival.com. And on the website, they also have hotel discounts that are good through the end of this week. So if you're going to go and you want to stay at the hotel where the convention is going to be, jump on by the 18th this Friday at truecrimepodcastfestival.com. So if you're interested in attending, maybe checking out a True Crime Binge Live episode, and I believe Josh Hallmark will also be there doing a True Crime Bullshit Live presentation, and you'll get to meet all your favorite podcasters. Just go one more time to truecrimepodcastfestival.com, grab your tickets, and use my promo code ROUGH, and you'll get 10% off. So hopefully, I'm going to see a bunch of you there. And now, for the main event. My guests today host the fascinating podcast, The Piketon Massacre. Season 2 just began a couple weeks ago, and it is as binge-worthy as they come. So please welcome Courtney Armstrong, Jeff Shane, Welcome, everybody. I'm here joined today by the hosts of the Piketon Massacre podcast. And as we were just starting to discuss a little bit off the air, my voice is really... So I just got... This is going to air in a little... Probably a week or two. But I'm recording this the day after I got back from CrimeCon. And I have no voice, which I found out last night at my son's uh, Little League game when I was trying to... (laughs) I was trying to scream at a kid to slide into second base and it just came out.
1: (laughs)
2: <laughs> <laughs> it's yeah, a professional uh, fear, right, to lose your voice altogether. How was CrimeCon?
0: Oh, it was it was a lot of fun. A little smaller than the last year's events, but it was it was a good time. I had we did two true crime binge live episodes, which for you audience will be hearing soon. Uh, I did with Nick and the Captain, and with Stephanie Harlow and Derek Lavasser. But that's but I didn't lose my voice doing that. I lost my voice because we always like to do like fan meetups in the evenings, like out at local bars. And Austin is a college town, which means every local bar has speakers everywhere blasting Cardi B uh, really loud when we're trying to talk. So you end up screaming into people's ears all night. And I have completely lost my voice. It's coming back a little bit now, though.
1: Seems worth it, though. That sounds fun. Yeah, we got a lot of
2: messages from Crime Con of all kinds of fun scenarios happening there. So, yeah, we're sad that we missed it, unfortunately.
0: I said, did you have some FOMO when you were getting the messages? I
2: was. Yeah. We do a lot of work with Nancy Grace, the queen. Um, and of course, she was there and, you know, as an icon at CrimeCon.
0: Mm-hmm. Yep. I saw and I didn't get to talk to Nancy, um, but I did see her there. Uh, yeah. So the, um, the, the most fun we had. So our last night we were in Austin, we had a big meetup where uh, myself and Zach from Truth and Justice, uh, Nick and Captain... Aaron and Justin from Gen Y, Maggie Freeling, uh, Rebecca Sebastian, Doctor Shiloh, Jason Baldwin showed up. Wow! I mean, it was yeah, it was a it was a it was a good time, and it was a bad hangover the next <laughs> <Yeah>. day.
2: Nice,
0: <laughs> as most
2: good times are. <laughs> <laughs> right.
0: uh, so let me. I'm going to go around the horn real quick, and and let everybody know who I'm talking to. Uh, and I'm going to do it as though I'm dealing cards, the way it looks on my screen. So on the top left of my screen, I have Mr. Jeff Shane. You want to say hi, Jeff? Hello, everybody. Hi, Bob. Hello. And uh, directly under under Jeff is Stephanie Lidecker. Is it Lidecker or Lidecker?
2: Lidecker.
0: Stephanie Lidecker. If you want to say hello to everyone?
2: Yeah, really. Thank you for having us. And hello to your listeners.
0: It is my pleasure. And then on my bottom right, in what looks to be kind of the coolest room, but also kind of dark, uh, is Courtney Armstrong.
1: Hello, thanks for having us so much.
0: Yeah. Uh where where are you recording? Is this like a studio type situation?
1: Uh it's a studio type situation. It was a closet not all that long ago. <laughs> and so <laughs> but now so I had an engineer just FaceTime me, help me out. So I have uh you know, the studio stuff actually. And it's pretty good. Records pretty clean. Sweet. It looks like the Matrix, though, you're right. It's a very odd look, but
0: <laughs> <laughs> So uh yeah, on the Piketon Massacre. Courtney, uh, you are kind of the lead the lead of the show. You're the the overall narrator. And then um, Jeff and Stephanie are in and out throughout the episodes doing interviews and adding commentary. So the, the three of you working together, you're all on Zoom now. You're all in different locations. I'm assuming when you're making these podcasts, especially during the last year, you probably weren't all sitting in the same room. So uh, going the reverse order around our our little Zoom conference here, I'll start with Courtney. Tell us a little bit about number one, where you're located and kind of what your background is and how you got mixed up with these other two.
1: Sure. So I'm in Los Angeles. We're all in Los Angeles and we absolutely were apart for the last year during COVID. Um, Been a TV producer for a long time, Uh, did crime in and out for the past 15 years. And then I ended up meeting Stephanie almost 10 years ago, and it was supposed to be a two-week job. She was looking for someone, and a friend of ours paired us up, and then uh, that two-week job, here we are 10 years later, um, and we were doing development, so we developed a ton of shows, produced a ton of shows. Um, I'll let Steph talk a little bit more in detail about KT Studios, but the three of us work, and we do all different kinds of shows and now podcasts, and our first was the Piketon Massacre which has done pretty well.
0: So you said podcast. So is there more uh, from your this group here, aside from the Pike to Massacres? What else do you guys do?
1: So we're all, they're all in production right now. So nothing that's aired. So okay. I'm not even sure actually how much we can say. They all top we, secret.
2: We can share a little bit though. Yeah, yeah We're working on a project called the Doherty Gang, which is also a true crime podcast. Uh, there's no murder involved, but it's about three siblings who, we're basically bandits who were on a lam trying to escape the FBI, um, did a bank heist. And we are doing prison interviews with the real people, real time. And uh, also we're doing a podcast called Crazy in Love, which will be a weekly, which is um, each episode is an adjudicated true crime case and sort of a real look at Love and how sometimes love can be the tipping point to crazy or to really grisly events, and kind of what the red flags are that could potentially be noticed in the real world as we hear these stories.
0: So, Stephanie, you're, as you said, you're all in LA, uh, and that's how you and Courtney got together. So, are were you also from a TV background?
2: Yes, um, I am. I'm from a TV background, um, decades of it. Um, to be honest, and was always an unscripted. I started off in talk shows and when the reality boom happened, you know, we call it unscripted now, but at the time that was sort of talk shows at night. And I worked on things like, you know, American Idol season one and The Bachelors and developed Jersey Shore and did a lot of loud unscripted shows. And ultimately we started KT Studios a couple of years ago, simply because we wanted to be able to make things ourselves and sort of have the idea, do the research, discuss it with the networks directly, and you know make things that we can really get our hands dirty in, and do it as a team. And um, this podcast being one of them, you know, Pikedon was a real passion project for us. We actually did a documentary about it um, a couple of years back, and and talking about it to iHeart, they you know made the suggestion that we do the podcast, and suddenly we were in the podcast business. And at a time when so many things were impossible to shoot during COVID, we all sort of experienced it real time. Uh, the podcast world really opened up a lot of opportunities for us. iHeart's been amazing, obviously. And Jeff, we met um, previously, also many years ago. The three of us have been working together in different capacities, developing content, documentaries, and also you know home improvement shows and you know dating shows. And I think really the truth of it is we're all sort of looking for authenticity and things to care about. And I think true crime really sort of hits that note, at least for me. I'm a viewer, first and foremost, a listener to you, of course, and watch far too much Dateline. But, you know, the stakes are so high and the authenticity is so much there that it doesn't really require anything other than really letting a person tell the tale of their own lives, Piked being no exception.
0: That's really, really cool. So, so Jeff, it sounds like you also... From a TV background.
3: Yeah. All TV came from like how Steph described it, reality TV. Um and, you know, at KT Studios, we have kind of shifted more to true crime. And that started at as television documentaries and true crime series. Um, and then kind of fell into the podcast space, which over the last year during the pandemic has really been great because we all are able to do this remotely and where TV was shutting down, podcasts were really we could do it every day. We were still working and What's been great about recording the Piketon Massacre for the iHeartRadio podcast network is that we've been able to have so much creative freedom to tell this story, which is so complex and layered. I mean, there's eight victims. Two of them have the same first name. So it's confusing. It can be confusing. But we've really had the time to lay it all out and really break down the story, I think, hopefully in a way that's understandable for the listeners and a way that that does the victims justice, but also does the community justice and the crime justice.
2: Yeah. And also we have a, you know, documentary and unscripted backgrounds, but, you know, the podcast world is a different medium altogether. We can't rely on photographs and things that you would normally be able to rely on in a documentary, for example. And we're all fans, you know, to the core of all of these true crime, not only podcasts, but also the documentaries. You know, we had mentioned Nancy Grace. We uh, worked on her series on, you know, Injustice, also on Oxygen with our partners, IPC. Um, and really have just sort of surrounded ourselves to the best of our ability with the the best in the true crime business, right? And, you know, the story unfolds in a way that in only in a podcast can you really unpack it from A to Z and have that tangent happen and really take a time out. Whereas sometimes in T V it's it's linear, right? And you only have X amount of time to tell a tale. So this has been a real Joy for us, for lack of a better term. I mean, in all honesty, at some point we were making this in our closets separately, season one at least, you know, in the midst of COVID. While the world shut down, it became pretty clear that we had to switch gears and figure out how to do what we do differently. And thank you, iHeart, for giving us that swing.
0: So, who does uh, the majority of the writing as a combined effort? Because I'm, so I I went the other way, right? So, I've been doing true crime podcasting for, for five years. And then my show got picked up by oxygen and I moved in to start producing my TV series. And it's a very different kind of writing and storyboarding and everything because of those time restraints and everything you have, everything's into these act structures and you have, you know, we've got 11 minutes before there's going to be a commercial break and you got to pack everything in. Um, so I had to learn that way, but it's all, I, I have to imagine. That's it's a very different learning curve. Now you you don't have the time restrictions when you go from TV into podcasting. But as you mentioned, you don't have any visuals. It's a very different kind of writing to try to uh, really paint a picture for someone when they're only hearing spoken word audio, and then you you don't have the benefit of of B roll to you know it's it's everything so is just one hundred percent the entire time. Everybody's just listening to everything you say. So who does who does the writing?
2: I think we all sort of do it together, to be honest. Um, we have an amazing team and an extraordinary editor, too, who deserve a shout out. Andrew Becker and Jared Aston, who edits the project. I think it's a really strong team effort, to be truthful. You know, you mentioned the TV side of it. That's so true. And when we first started the podcast process, you know, we were sort of like, oh, my goodness, what do we do now? Um, how do you tell a story without the benefit of a photo, especially something this large Where there are so many people involved that you want to pay appropriate justice to. Um, And listen, we're still doing it real time. Um, Sometimes we refer to a photo that we share online. It's hard to make sure that we're able to track the story. That's a big deal and a hard thing. Sometimes it just requires, you know, we close our eyes and Courtney will literally read it out loud just so we can make sure it's tracking and that, you know, for the listener who's either driving in their car or, Folding laundry or listening intently that, you know, we're not taking too many things for granted, right? Because again, in the TV side of it, you would have the benefit of a Chiron name or under a photograph when we're talking about a person or, you know, you mentioned B roll. So we would be able to have the visual of a night versus a day. And that's sort of been kind of the fun learning curve to be truthful, you know, whether we're nailing it or not, I, it remains to be seen, but we do enjoy the process for whatever it's worth. And, you know, Courtney, who is um, taking lead as the narration head, first of all, she's so good. So really, it's um, such an incredibly happy accident. Truthfully, we probably would have hired a VO person and we were in our closets making this podcast during the pandemic. And Little did we know that Courtney was right with us as a star. (laughs) She's really able to read so beautifully and has such a wonderful voice that what was maybe temp VO ended up being the real thing. And, you know, now she's going to have a real fancy voiceover career. And, you know, listen, it's a lot of the stuff that we would do on a show normally, we get to record it now. So a huge piece of our job in unscripted, if we were doing the documentary, it's a lot of smile and dialing, right? You're, You're calling people, you're striking out, you're trying again, you're doing interviews, you're calling. That is the job, right? And in this case, we just record all those conversations that we would normally be using as an info grab prior to doing a formal sit-down interview with somebody on camera. In this case, we're, you know, essentially recording the pre-production process. And listen, there's a lot of burn that hits the editing floor, obviously, but it's been really fun. And there's something sort of incredibly intimate about it where somebody is maybe a little bit more able to talk comfortably when there's not a camera and lights in their home. You know, there's a certain formality even if you put a camera in front of me right now, I immediately get a little nervous, right? And you know, we sort of edit ourselves and just the the natural nuance of just having a conversation with a person over the telephone uh, seems to be something that is unexpectedly interesting, at least for us.
0: Sure. Well, you, it's so hard to capture in TV, at least in my experience, those organic moments. I mean, most people don't realize when you know you see you know when when you're watching the Forgotten West Memphis Three and you see me sitting down chatting with somebody around a kitchen table, that there was four hours of setup that went into that, that with the the lights and the position. I mean, everything from the you know the the showrunner positioning where the plants are at and all the lighting, and we're trying to stay separate from the person I'm interviewing so that we don't, we can still try to capture that organic conversation. It's very different than, you know, like a lot of the the interviews that I'll capture on Truth and Justice, not even over the phone, but even, even in person where, you know, I've got my gear literally in my hand.
2: Exactly. And,
0: and it's like, hey, would you mind, do you mind if I record this? No, beep, and we start talking. And they don't have all of that. You know, twenty five people standing just off camera, watching this all this all go down, making them making them nervous. Uh, I didn't realize, Courtney, because Courtney, you have a, you do have an amazing voice. Like you sound
2: extraordinary.
0: Uh, it, it's incredible.
2: You guys are very kind. No, it's a real thing, though. Just you know, she really is extraordinary at it. You know, listen, she's also a rock star producer, as is Jeff. Um, extraordinary on all fronts, and a real utility belt in every category. But let's be honest, her voice is epic.
0: Oh, I, the first thing I thought of when I started my own my binge of of the Piketon Massacre when I heard you was like, as I couldn't put my finger on it, but it's like it's almost like like a Sarah Koenig type. There's like this ambivalence. It just, it just it, it, it's like you know, I know you're probably reading a script, but you just don't feel that you're reading a script at all. It it just seems very flowing and natural. And I didn't realize that. None of you, if I'm understanding you right, none of you guys are, prior to this, have been like on-screen talent. You're behind the
1: scenes. Correct. Producers. Oh, producer, producers. Yeah. yeah, yeah very behind the scenes.
2: <laughs> yeah. I mean, even when we started, yeah. you know, I had up KT and really just with a one goal, which is to work with people that you love. Um, present company being the people that I love. Uh, Jeff and Courtney are extraordinary to work with and collaborate every day. But yeah, we're producers and, you know, run a production company and all the bells and whistles that come with that. Whereas when we're working together on the podcast, it's like all the air leaves the room and we're able to just sort of be in the moment a bit. Um, and you mentioned, you know, first of all, the West Memphis three, your work on that is really extraordinary. And I think really a tipping point to sort of why I believe true crime podcasts and content in general is really significant. Um, it really, affected me as a human being, as a viewer. You know, you're seeing real-time, real humans who have sort of experienced something that we could never even fathom. And only until you're sort of seeing an intimate conversation or hearing an intimate conversation, and as viewers, you want to get involved, and that can really move the needle, which, you know, obviously, content really helped that case in particular. And even as a, a viewer, you know, you just want to know more and you don't realize, yes, that it's a pretty sophisticated operation behind the scenes when you're making a documentary or a TV series. Oxygen has been so good to us specifically as a company and as individuals. Um, but yeah, there's a lot of things that go on behind the scenes, right? Whereas the podcast medium seems to be the benefit of just a quiet conversation, whether that's one's better than the other. It's not here nor there. It's, it's definitely more of a relaxed setting. Um, that I can promise you, I think it's it's really become a piece of our DNA that we love so much. Um, and hopefully, you know, the true crime world in general, it feels like content can really at least move the needle a little bit or create a little bit of a swell. So either it doesn't happen again, or some sickening injustice is maybe preventable. Or when we look at our own lives, you can sort of identify maybe who the boogeyman is, and maybe not go that extra step because, you know, these stories are heinous at the core, but they're really just stories of regular people who have found themselves in really extraordinary situations.
0: Right. You know, I, I, I want to ask you guys, so you, all three of you are LA producers, live in the LA producer life. Are all three of you from LA or any of the three of you from LA?
2: No, none of us. No. I'm from none New of- York. I'm from New York, uh, Long Island originally, Lake Ronkonkoma, Exit 58 off the Long Island Expressway. Lived in New York City forever from there. Um, court, and also yeah, a New grew- Yorker.
1: Yeah, I grew up in Queens and then moved to Connecticut and then came out here after college. What about
0: you, Jeff?
3: Yeah, from Northern California. Went to undergrad in Iowa and then came to LA post graduation.
0: So I, I want to know before we start moving into talking about this case, what were your first? real jobs that weren't in the TV industry. I'm always curious about this, and and, and whether you guys jumped right into the business, uh, because I I learned being in the business a little bit that most people, whether they're producers or screenwriters or whatever they are, no matter what they went to school for no matter what they are now, they almost always start out as a PA somewhere, you know, fetching coffee uh, and then work their way up. But did any of you have any interesting or just, I'm just curious what they were other jobs before you were able to break into the business?
1: Uh, this is Courtney. I had many in a short amount of time when I moved to Los Angeles, did temp, like everyone just to get money. I mean, I answered the phone at the Santa Monica mall, Santa Monica place. We make good things happen. Um, <laughs> so I did everything from that. So she's been a pro voice actor since the start. I, right, exactly. <laughs> right. Exactly. So that's what,
0: yeah, that's what I heard is she has been a VO artist yeah. since the very beginning.
1: Um, I worked for a lawyer for a year. I was a writer and a copy editor. I taught writing at USC and then which when I was getting my grad degree. And then I interned when I was doing that and ended up in TV. So it was a couple of years of a lot of stuff. How about you, Stephanie?
2: I was a waitress um, always. Um, I was a waitress through high school and through college. I My first job was as an intern at the Sally Jesse Raphael show. Remember Sally with the red glasses, the Chalk oh, Show yeah. of um, I Personally, I thought she answered her own telephone and invited people to be on her show. And when I got to the <laughs> set and saw that it was such a big operation, and that there were producers and bookers and Um, how talented Sally Jesse Raphael was to be able to do a show at that level so often. It was a big operation and really an eye-opener. And yeah, I've had every uh, silly job in the business and was the same, an intern, the receptionist. Sally show, please hold. Sally show, please hold. Sally show, please hold. Sally show, please hold. (laughs) And, you know, a production assistant and an associate producer and a booker and a researcher and a story producer um, have had, you know, more jobs than I care to admit at this point. But you know, you kind of get a 360 also because you sort of see different perspectives, <laughs> depending right. upon what side of the table you're on.
0: That's awesome. How about you, Jeff? Yeah, I've worked at restaurants
3: and stuff. But then, luckily, my first job when I came to LA, I was a logger for the Bad Girls Club, which I don't know if you're familiar <laughs> with that show, <laughs> woman just living in a house and fighting. And logging is where you obviously watch all the raw footage and then just type up descriptions of each moment. And I was like, Getting paid to watch TV was like the best job of all time, making minimum wage. And I was like, this is the best. I'm like living the dream. I made it.
2: <laughs> yeah. Jeff is a bit of a savant TV-wise. And thank God there is a job in content because all I did was watch television growing up. And Oprah, you know, was such a big piece of my identity. So when I got into television and saw that there were other people that it was applauded to watch television 24 hours a day, that that was a oh, Hail Mary. Yeah, my first uh, real job in Unscripted as a producer was on Temptation Island, season two. And again, it was a crazy thing to be kind of in the beehive. And your job was to watch other people be themselves, which, by the way, is not a very easy task. So, you know, reality shows from back then, you know, they kind of get a bad rap for being um, this or that or not true. But in my experience, certainly in the early days it's a pretty big ask to have a person be wildly themselves with, as you mentioned, cameras around them. It takes a really specific human, but also a real level of talent to be able to pull that off. It's um, it's not as easy as it looks.
0: My wife, Jeff, would be so jealous of your first job because those are the shows <laughs> she she loves. Like, She's constantly, and, and she gets so mad at me because I ruin them for her all the time because she's always, now her thing is like all the 5,000 different Real Housewives shows that oh, are yeah. out right now.
2: Don't get me started.
0: Yeah. And every time I walk in, I'm like, oh, are they fighting again? That's weird. Uh, the, the girls are, <laughs> the ladies are all arguing <laughs> with each other. Yeah. And then I always ruin it for her when when someone like walks into a room and they immediately start fighting and, and I'm like, you know, that. You know, they did that, didn't just happen by accident, right? There, they, they spent hours setting the lights up and the camera and all the different angles so that they could come in and have this fight. They didn't accidentally capture that. Said, Shut up, you're ruining it for me. <laughs> well, I'll destroy the fun. And,
2: and by the way, and I will say, because you know, certainly in the early days, I did the early seasons of The Bachelor and Idol, and you know, those shows they shoot all the time. So mm-hmm. I think there's like this feeling, which, you know, may or may not be the case more so now, but certainly in the beginning days, you know, you kind of rolled tape and eventually people kind of kind of forgot that the cameras were there a little bit, right? So they could really be authentic and be themselves. And, you know, Jersey Shore is an infamous example. You know, I think they shot about 600 hours of tape to get, you know, one hour of television. So You know, it was less of a, okay now here's your scene where you get to be funny and loud. You know, it's really just if you have extraordinary casting, shout out to the Housewives, because I do watch them. We had nothing to do with those shows. (laughs) But, you know, (laughs) eventually, if you have the right cast, they're just either very good about being themselves in the moment in a certain amount of time, or you roll a lot of tape and, you know, eventually people are able to be interesting. That is not the case for me, though, uh, at all. So if you had cameras uh, on us right now, you know, you turn into a door, at least for me, or, you know, get nervous and start putting on, you know, the version of yourself that you think sounds um, more appropriate. And the truth is that always smells, right? We always want people who are just like wildly themselves, which is um, it's hard. It's a hard gig.
3: But I think to bring that back to the podcast space it creates a level of comfort, which we kind of talked about, to, to just be able to call someone and not even really know who you're calling. I mean, we had a list of numbers. We're just like, let's just start bringing people with the last name Roden,
0: <laughs> Right, right.
3: And people are just more comfortable and you create a relationship with someone over the phone. There's, I mean, most of the people we've talked to, we've never met face to face. and But people feel very comfortable. They're, they're in their car, they're making dinner for their kids, and they really feel like they can open up. And we're really getting, I think, a more vulnerable side to someone than when you are setting up in their living room for six hours, putting a microphone on them and a giant light, which I think to, to helps us create something much more intimate.
0: Yeah. And I, th- I think that as a consumer of, especially since I've started this show, I'm the consumer of lots of podcasts because I mm-hmm. always listen as much as I can before I, I sit down and interview folks. And, and as a consumer, those moments are so, for me, I appreciate them so much and they're so authentic because you feel like, I love the show, you know, much like yours where you have a lot of different voices where it's almost like I'm a fly on the wall and you get those authentic moments. Even if, you know, the sound quality shit because they're driving their car while they while you're talking to them, like you, you can see it happening. Like this is real. This is a real conversation. It's not rehearsed. It's not it's not edited like this is what's really happening. And I really like that as a consumer. So now, Stephanie, I understand you, was the idea for the podcast, did that come from iHeart or had the three of you already talked about wanting to make a podcast?
2: Quite the opposite. Yes, we had done a documentary for Oxygen and it was a two-hour documentary. I was talking to Tom Pullman, who is iHeart's greatness, and talking all about the documentary. And, you know, he very casually was like, you know, that would make for a really good podcast. And cut to several months later, we got an email to speak to Will Pearson in person, and we were shooting in Atlanta at the time. Courtney and I were both happened to be in Atlanta, and we were arranging this meeting to have all of us get on the phone, uh, not realizing that they were actually in Atlanta as well. And we were like, you know what, we could just come over tomorrow, <laughs>
1: right. and
2: uh, we went there in person, and kind of talked about what the podcast would look like, because it kind of picked up really where the documentary left off, and sort of what our goals were, but really, they just were so collaborative. And, you know, next thing we knew, we were, we were on our way to make a podcast, COVID happened. So that kind of shifted our plan, which, you know, looking back what the plan was, is probably, you know, questionable. (laughs) Um, we didn't know who the voice was going to be or, you know, what it would look like. We just knew that we had access and we wanted to gain more access. And, you know, outside of the two hours that we had done with oxygen, you know, there was still a lot to unpack. So, you know, again, we just started recording stuff. And if I'm honest, those early days and Jeff really lived it uh, firsthand because he became the tech supervisor. You know, we initially ordered microphones and stuff from Amazon and started figuring it out. You know, real time, um, the way it sort of happens in our imagination. And somehow that has now turned into something really special for us and now a big piece of our business.
0: Was anybody resistant, any of the three, when they said to do a podcast? Or were all three of you like, yes, no, game to
1: make a podcast? (laughs) I'm a voracious podcast listener, have been for Uh a really long time. So I was so excited authentically these guys can attest pretty much every sentence for a couple of years would start. I was listening to a podcast.
2: We go like (laughs) this when we hear something, you know, we all twinkle our fingers. That's like Courtney's MO is, well, on the podcast, I heard this on the podcast, you know, Jeff and I are watching Housewives all night in Siesta Key. So, you know, we definitely come at it at different uh, points. But yeah, Courtney and I left our conversation with Will Pearson, and we're soon introduced to Tyler Klang at iHeart. And we high fived and we're like, Podcast, baby! not even necessarily knowing what that meant, other than maybe it's a radio cut for what we would normally do in television. But yeah, it was a fun process. And I have to be honest, iHeart really gave us a lot of flexibility to sort of play a little bit in the early days to kind of figure out what the sound should be like. And because it's such a small team, it was really collaborative. And um, Jeff, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I think we were like we're gonna make a podcast today, and really not knowing what that meant at the time.
0: So you made the podcast, and it's amazing that it got kind of like suggested. You're all in. You make the podcast, and the the production is phenomenal. It's one of the better produced podcasts that I've heard in a long time. I I love the format of, uh, and it's something I'm always like striving for on Truth and Justice. But what, since I'm like literally week to week in real time, you usually get that for about three episodes before I'm so backed up that I can't <laughs> I can't do you're it. Anymore. Living that too yeah but i but i love the format of of the constant changing of voices i think that that just makes for such a great listener experience when it's not just as truth and justice is most of the time just me droning on for 45 minutes every week
2: you're excellent
0: but you get these thank you um you get these constant on on the piketon massacre changing of voices whether it's it's courtney doing a narration jumping to a clip from an interview uh, back to narration, and then into a, either Stephanie or or Jeff coming in with some commentary, um, or in the middle of an interview. It's just always bound. It's, it's just constantly keeping your attention, and that's. A, I think that's a that's a that's a TV thing. I feel like that most people that come from the TV space into the podcasting world understand that format, and then and then you guys execute it so well because you you don't notice it. But when you're watching TV, you're never staring at the same person for more than. Thirty seconds at a time, even if they're even if they're talking for longer than that, you're popping over to B-roll and back and forth and yeah. different camera angles, making the room move. And you guys certainly do a great job of making the room move, uh, in air quotes, on the, on the podcast. And now let's get into the podcast a little bit because this case, I I was not familiar. I've heard of the case. I'm sure my wife has watched the documentary. She's a big. I'm a podcast listener. She's more of a documentary watcher. But the the Pikedon Massacre, I've heard about. Didn't know a lot about of it until I started listening to your podcast. And God, what a what a horrible, tragic, and fascinating story. And so this was—I'm gonna let you guys break it down. the The basics of it are: we're talking April 2016, and we have eight people from the Roden family uh, who are all murdered, massacred. But the, the interesting part about that is it happens in four different crime scenes. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was like it was a complete family annihilation style attack where it's not like somebody broke into a house and killed eight people i mean there was it was eight, four different crime scenes uh so however you guys want to break it down between the three of you can you kind of give us the the beats and the reader's digest version of the case
3: yeah the the Roden family lived in Pike County for generations and over the course of one night as you said were gunned down in their homes there were three children left alive at the crime scenes young children and it really changed this town. You know, they were from high school level all the way to in their 40s. And so everyone knew someone in the Roden family. And it, it really, everyone was afraid in this small community. I mean, there were 22, I think 2,200 people in Piketon. And, you know, people were afraid. People locked their doors in a way that they hadn't before. People thought a killer was amongst them. And it became the largest criminal investigation in Ohio's history. And it went down many roads and many twists and turns. Uh, at one point, they thought a drug cartel might have been involved. They might have thought a serial killer. Who knew? Two years later, another family, another family of six, was arrested for their murders, and they were intrinsically connected to the Roden family. They had relationships with them. They worked with them, and so it was really another family allegedly gunned down this family. It was extremely planned over months, and this other family, the Wagner family, pled their innocence, you know, to the press in the courtroom and you know they said who we want to catch the real monsters who did this it wasn't us it wasn't us and on the five-year anniversary of the crimes as we were producing season two of the podcast jake wagner one of the main defendants in the case went into the courtroom made a surprise appearance where he changed his plea from not guilty to guilty and he accepted a plea deal where he would in exchange for admitting to pulling the trigger on five of the Roden family members would testify against his family but also take the death penalty off the table for all of them and so we were like i don't know if i can swear but like holy shit this is i can't believe this just happened it changed Mm -hmm. the podcast we had to completely redo episodes in real time as this was happening we were weeks away from premiering but now we are kind of covering these updates every week in real time as things happen and we're getting new information You know, daily things are happening, and that's kind of become what the Piketon Massacre season two is about is really what will happen in the courtroom and how has Jake Wagner's surprise plea deal, how is it going to shape the rest of these cases? Because it it definitely will.
2: It definitely will. And I think, you know, when the three of us got involved with this case, you know, we had gone there in person because um, Pike County is a rural place and you know homes are far apart and you know like we said earlier sometimes you get lucky calling people and sometimes you really don't and this is a small town of roughly 2000 people so imagine 8 of them are murdered in such a gruesome way at four different locations as jeff said and i think it's worth noting too at four different locations with very different crime scenes and it's really they took out generations of the same family that seemingly It made no sense. And, you know, now we also know that it was a very intimate murder. It seems as though the killers and their victims were in eye to eye potentially in some cases. So, you know, the murderers really wanted to be seen. And, you know, as Jeff mentioned, initially it kind of had seemed as though there was maybe a drug cartel hit, but none of that really added up simply because there were, there were attack dogs at certain locations that never really attacked. As Jeff mentioned, there were three children who were thankfully unharmed, but left alive at the scene. And that didn't necessarily, from our research, match up to the MO of a cartel hit. As hideous as this sounds, you know, it seems as though that would be something that would happen very quickly and fast in an assassination style, where this seemed a little bit more of an overkill and a lot more personal, if that's possible. And here we go, you know, come to find out that another local family who knew the rodents very, very well, intimately well, um, were potentially trigger pullers a mother, a father, and two sons. Imagine an entire family who comes together, allegedly, around a table to plan and plot the murders of eight people and, and do it quite well. Um, you know, based on recent events and from what we've heard, uh, they had been running surveillance on the Rodin family homes, um, the major connective tissue that gets spoken about a lot. And there's a lot of layers to this. So, you know, forgive me for paraphrasing, but the youngest son, Jake Wagner, on the accused side and the youngest daughter on the victim side, Hannah, Rodin, they had a child in common and they had a two-year-old named Sophia. And there seemed to have been some issues over custody at that time, along with many other uh, factors, right? So here are two families who know each other well and at the bare minimum are brought together because they have a love for Sophia. Grandparents on both sides and uncles and, you know, this is a family in a small town who spent a lot of time together, only to find out that that exact same family, the Wagners, allegedly were Putting a plot together where they were going to solve this for themselves and do something so big as murdering eight people in the middle of the night at four different locations, then going home together and somehow waking up the next day and going to do press and telling the people of the town, Oh, there's a killer out there. I hope they catch them. And that's the piece of it. I think that really kind of really gets to the core of it. How do you do that? and then have some level of composure thereafter. And when we got involved, it didn't seem possible that the Wagners had done it. When we were in Pike County ourselves in person, it wasn't with the assumption necessarily that the Wagners were guilty. It was actually quite the opposite. That could never be. There's a a killer mom, a mother that would actually put a plan in place to secure custody of her grandchild and have her boys and her husband and herself be trigger pullers in a murder that was this massive. You know, some people were shot multiple times in the face, you know, direct contact. That's gruesome. And forgive me for being so gruesome, but, you know, I'm a mom, courts mom, you know, the idea that there were children there, you know, Hannah Roden was holding her four day old while she was murdered. You know, like these are things that I had never heard of before. And this case really didn't seem to have a lot of national recognition for reasons we still can't quite explain to be truthful it wasn't on the today show and it wasn't on the good morning america ticker and we don't still know why frankly and yet as jeff you know jeff mentioned um now that jake wagner has gone to court and made a plea deal and now has accepted responsibility for five of the eight his um has agreed to testify against his own mother his own brother and his own father that's like the stage of which we could never have imagined.
1: Just one thing I was going to add, Jeff mentioned that six people from the Wagner family were arrested, which is indeed true. And in addition to the mother, father, and the two brothers, grandmothers on both sides, Frederica Wagner and Rita Newcomb also were arrested, not in conjunction with the murder itself, to be very, very clear about that. But for other involvement that has since, it's an unfolding, it's another layer. We don't, I think, need to go into it too much. But speaking of generations, there are three generations who have been arrested and were arrested on that one day. And in we'll find out in court to what capacity people were involved or not. I mean, obviously, everyone's innocent until proven guilty. But it's just, it's very far-reaching.
0: I always wonder a little bit, right, when somebody makes the deal like Jack made, because it's it, you, you always have to wonder, like if he's if he's truly worried about the death penalty, uh, is he willing to take the responsibility for something he didn't do in order to avoid that? If he feels like there's no other choice, or is he is he is he being genuine? I'm really curious how this shakes out as things go along, because the, the the thing all the, the thing that I'm thinking is so, and the only motive I'm hearing. And, and I'll ask you guys if there's more to this than that, is that there's like this custody dispute between the the young couple. And it's like, how does that equal not just taking out the, you know, the, the person you're having the custody dispute with, but his whole family and four different scenes? I mean, the amount of risk that is involved there compared to the air quotes reward is just, man, that's hard to wrap your brain around.
2: And how do you come back from it, right? So four different locations, four human beings who are considered trigger pullers based on their indictments. Jake has now pled to five of the eight, which is an interesting aside because if he was lying to save his family, why not just say you did all of it, right? Mm-hmm. Or if he's looking to fold on his family, why now? There's much more behind the scenes happening that will still be evolving, and we're you know obviously tracking that real time, desperate to know. But at some point, uh, four people who kill one person, God forbid, at some point you think going to the next and to the next and to the next and now switching locations and opening another door and doing this again, That, that pack mentality that one of the four would say stop or one of the four would say no. We've never heard of a killer family before. And Mm -hmm. we do this all the time, right? So the notion that four people as a family, as a pack, and yes, the grandmothers were also involved, allegedly, for not being trigger pullers and not even speculated to be anywhere near the crime scenes at the time, more of just a commiserating element, but interesting nonetheless. But again, a mother, father, two sons over custody, it seems far-fetched, right? It seems quite impossible and also impossible that they could have gotten away with it to some degree. You know, it was several years before they were arrested. um, Mm -hmm. And this plea arrangement was five years later. So again, there's there's so much behind the scenes that we don't even know yet. We have so much information and some of it's redacted and will be coming out now real time as the trials are set to begin. And it's the stuff that Greek, you know, plays are made of, you know, it's a, a son testifying against his own mother. They were very close by all accounts, family, the Wagner family and a big family in the town, they were beloved, they were liked, um, they seemed just like one of us, right? So I think it sort of taps into maybe what we all sort of are intrigued by when it comes to true crime is like the, the feeling of safety, right? The, the, the bad people might come in in the middle of the night from far, far away. You don't really want, think it's like somebody in the circle, right? Somebody who knows you well, somebody who knows your, your coming and goings. Mm-hmm. Yeah, somebody who you've hugged. You know, we have photographs of them embracing.
0: So this case has so many, so many layers, so many elements to it. I'm going to continue on through my binge. I can't wait to see where season two goes from here and what really happens with this case. I am so intrigued and you're definitely going to want to give it a listen yourself. Their names are Courtney Armstrong, Jeff Jane and Stephanie Lidecker. The podcast is called the Piketon Massacre. Check it out. It is absolutely going to be your next true crime binge. Thank you all for
1: joining me. Thanks for having us. Thank you, Bob, so much. Thank you, Bob.
0: True Crime Binge is an NBI Studios production and is distributed by Boom. produced and edited by Mike Bussing. Music and artwork by Shane Yoder of com. Our website, TrueCrimeBinge.com, was created by Katie Ross of CreatedInTandem.com. If you're a listener and would like to recommend a future guest or a podcaster that would like to request an interview, you can do so right on our website. And again, that web address is TrueCrimeBinge.com. If you're enjoying the show, Please do me a huge favor and take a minute to rate and review us on iTunes or whatever platform you're using to listen. And make sure you give us a follow on social media. We can be found everywhere at True Crime Binge. Thank you so much for listening, and make sure you tune in next Wednesday morning for another podcaster, another case, and another True Crime Binge.